Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let, let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. After many, many months, uh, we're starting a new series, and this series is uh, about the parables of Jesus, and why is it important to teach the parables of Jesus? Parables are stories that have an ironic turn, an ironic twist, and that twist, in the twist, the intent was to shock anybody during Jesus' time who was listening, and if you hear it today and understand the meaning and the intent of what Jesus was saying it's intended to shock and move us. But it's really, its greatest intent is to teach us about the gospel, the truth of the gospel. So if you've been attending Metro Presbyterian Church for some time, you would know that the gospel means good news. God is on the move. He's, renor- he's renewing, he's restoring, he's forgiving his people. The kingdom of God is at hand. God is on the move. So on one hand, what that means is because the king is here, it's the end of you trying to control your life and manipulating your life for happiness and for joy because you've never been in control in the first place. But on the other hand, what it means is that we are submitting to a king, a real king, but this king is good and this king is perfect and this king is faithful. It's good news because it's the end of anxiety and the end of idolatry. It's freedom. Freedom for our souls. And this parable is going to tell us then what it means to have that freedom, to get the gospel. Three things. The gospel gives us a new identity, real freedom, and true power. A new identity, real freedom, and true power. First, we're going to go into a new identity. The gospel gives us a new identity. At the beginning of the parable, we're introduced to two characters, and no two characters can be completely contrasting to each other. The first one is rich, the other is poor. The first one is covered in in royalty and linens, the other one is covered in sores. The first one is feasting at his table, 
The other one is longing to eat from his table. The rich man gets a funeral. One of the men gets a funeral. The other one, there's no reference to a funeral. We just know that he died, which means that he was probably homeless. He died in the street. But what is the main point of contrast between these two people? And it goes like this. One of them goes to heaven. The other one goes to hell. Why does one get to go to heaven, the other go to hell? The difference between the two people is this. One of them has a name, has a name. The other one doesn't, and that's not a coincidence. Dozens of parables. We're going to be going through a good portion of them in this series through the summer. Dozens of parables exist in the Bible and the Gospels. And in every other parable, the subject never has a proper name, never has a proper name. They're always known as a father or a mother or a widow or some man or someone's son or, or a farmer, or a sower, or whatever. Except in this parable, the poor man is given a proper name, Lazarus. And Lazarus means God is my help. God is my salvation. Lazarus has a name because God is his help. And so from heaven, you see, Abraham is talking to the rich man. The rich man is in agony. He's in torment. And he says, in your lifetime, you received good things, your good things. In other words, you wasted your life during your lifetime. Because the difference between the two people is what is your help? The rich man relied on his good things. But Lazarus says, God is my help. Lazarus is poor, he's naked, he's completely disregarded, he's forgotten, he's hungry. He's not even given a proper burial, completely forgotten, but... God is his help. He's known by God. He's got a name. In other words, God is the sum of all of his worth. He's, he's got an empty bank account, but God is his richness. He is his riches. He is his worth, his sum of, the sum of his worth. The rich man, on the other hand, he's got good things. The good things were his riches. The good things are his abilities. Clearly, he must have been an intelligent man if he's specified to be a rich man among other rich people. He must have been incredibly intelligent, Degreed, pedigreed, right? Uh, he's got tremendous wealth. He's got status. And what the text is telling us is, though, that the rich man has no name. He's just regarded as a rich man, just another generic person. That's all he is. The sum of all of his worth is his riches because when the wealth is gone, and we see this when he's died, his identity is gone. He loses himself. He's got no name. The text is telling us here that when you make riches your identity, that's all you are. You don't have a name because one day it'll all be gone. We're on a ball of rock and it's hurling through space and one day it's going to come to an end. What do you have to cling on to? That's what the text is really asking us. It's a shocking, shocking passage. This rich man, he was just a rich man because when you take away his riches, he's got nothing left, nothing left of him. Take somebody, a very attractive person, an attractive woman, She lives for the power to attract other people. That's all she's got. That's her greatest asset. She's beautiful, so she's got the the power to attract people. Take somebody else. They have a great career. They have a great career, so they're going to use their greatest assets for the sake of their career. Take somebody who lives for their children. Everything is about their children. In every one of these cases, when you listen to them, when you're talking about them, what do they talk about? They're going to talk about the things that matter most to them. 
They're going to talk incessantly, nonstop, constantly about the things that, that matter most to them. They're going to talk about their job. They're going to talk about their careers. They're going to talk about their work, how much they hate their work, even though they need their work. They're going to talk about their children, how their children act, how their children behave, all the little quirks that they're learning about their children because they're filled with wonder only about their children. They talk incessantly, nonstop about their children. Let something go wrong with their children. What happens? They failed their children. There's guilt towards their children. As their children grow up, their children fall away from them or even from the church. They're broken, torn apart. They feel that their children have failed them. They failed their children. Take away your business. What happens? Take away your career. Take away your money. What happens? They're completely devastated. Your world just starts to spin, and the thing is, all you're doing is trying to figure and find, look for relief to get out of the mess that you're in. Take away your health or your looks, your good looks. What happens? What are you going to say? If you lose this thing, you feel like you've got no reason to live, no reason to go on. That thing is called your treasure. That is your wealth. You end up being nameless because if you've hooked into something, you know you've hooked into something. Maybe it's a relationship, your children, your marriage. You know, it could be your career. It could be anything. If you hooked into it, when that thing is lost, you've lost your treasure. It's like you've got no name because you've identified yourself as being a part of that entity. And when you lose that, you've got nothing else to you if you take it away. Now, what is a name? To have a name is to have an identity, to know that you exist to know uh, who you are, to know that you're valuable, to know where you're going. If you've, built your, if you've built your life on God, if God is the source of your identity, if God is your help, that means that all the other circumstances in the world, whether you lose it, whether you gain it, you still have a self. You still have a you left. It doesn't affect who you are. It doesn't affect where you're going. It doesn't affect your value, your, your, the sum of your worth. Lazarus is a great example. He had nothing but he had himself. He had an identity. He went through the most drastic change a person can endure. That's death. And that death actually increased himself. He had more of himself at the end. The rich man, he had no name. So what that means is he's built his life on everything other than God. He's built his life on his security, his career, stability, Maybe that brought him connections and relationships with people, relationships he never would have had if he didn't have wealth. It gives him a reputation. It gives him pride, allows him to take pride in who he is. When something comes to jeopardize it, such as death, you're not only going to be unhappy, he's lost himself. Now he doesn't know his value. Now he doesn't know his worth. Now he doesn't know his purpose. He doesn't even know his identity. He doesn't know who he is. You know your treasure by the thing that you protect the most. That's why in those ancient literature, in ancient literature, even down to present-day literature, treasure is always guarded by dragons because dragons are powerful. We're all like dragons protecting the things that we value most we're protecting, because we're protecting ourselves, our identities. There's no you left to sustain you at the core when you lose these things. To get the gospel... First and foremost is to have an identity, to have a you. Look at Lazarus. He had nothing. He was suffering. But what sent him to heaven was not his poverty. 
You don't see here that Lazarus went to heaven because he was poor. It's that he poured out his suffering. He was in agony, right? But he poured out his agony. He poured out his suffering to God. God was his help. God was who he trusted. And as a result, he became more of a person. We don't do that. To become more of a person, we look to so many other things. We look to other things to increase our identity. We look to other things to increase our name, to increase our options, to increase our freedom, to increase our joy, to increase our potential. But Lazarus, he knew who he was. And so regardless of whether he was rich or poor, there was a self, there was a core that was not dependent on any of these circumstances. He had a name. And as a result, when he died, that name increased so much greater even after his death. God was the source of his identity, and as a result, he was the source of his options and his potential and his freedom. He had increased options, increased options, increased uh, potential, increased freedom, increased joy. That's what he had with his name. So when eternity overwhelmed him, when eternity overtook him, he was so full of those things, it exploded into heaven. That was Lazarus. But the rich man, all those other things he was trying to fill himself with increased his emptiness until when he died, that emptiness exploded into hell. That's the rich man. That's Lazarus. He had no name, no identity. Next is freedom. We get freedom. Verse 23. Verse 23, you have... um, uh, the rich man, he's in hell, and where he was in torment, it said, he looks up and he sees Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Hell, in, Jesus, we have to pay attention whether or not you believe that hell exists because Jesus talks so much and Jesus single-handedly is regarded the greatest influence in world history. Whether you believe in who he was and what he did or not, Scholars across the board in the secular and non-secular and religious institutions will tell you that Jesus is probably the single most influential person in world history. So we have to pay attention to some of the things, at least some of the things he says. And uh, he talks incessantly about hell. He talks a lot about hell, so we have to take it seriously. This passage tells us two things about hell. First, hell is a fire. Why, why is fire so often, it's a metaphor, why is fire used so often in the Bible to discuss and describe hell? And the answer is this. If you're a chemistry major, a lot of Asians in this uh, crowd, so um, you know chemistry. You had to study chemistry at some point. Um, fire consumes. That's what fire does. Fire consumes. When something is put into fire, it burns up. You know, uh, a lot of children uh, growing up, you're fascinated. We have a lot of um, miniature pyromaniacs, right? When you're growing up, you're fascinated by what fire can do to something when you put, throw it into the fire. When you throw something into the fire, it doesn't cease to exist. What happens is the chemical properties that hold that thing together break in the fire. It breaks up the bonds that are holding, that are integrating that entity together. It breaks up, and as a result, it changes that entity. It destroys and disintegrates that entity, but the entity doesn't cease to exist. It breaks it apart. Fire breaks down things. That's what it does. It consumes and disintegrates. Things tend to lose their integration, their coherence uh, in the fire. What does the Bible say then about hell? Your sin, hell, disintegrates. It breaks you apart. Look at it this way. As long as you're alive on earth, no matter how far you try to escape God, no matter how far you try to run from God, no matter how much you rebel against God, 
you're never truly completely away from God. It's just really a part of his mercy. He's always still there, and you still have an opportunity to run back. So as long you could be running as far away from God as you can, God is still ever-present. He's there. It's a part of his grace. And as a result of that, you're always going to be somewhat, as long as you're alive in this world, you're always going to be somewhat intact, somewhat integrated. Every part of you is still in decay. It's going into decay, but still you're integrated. There's a part of you that's still intact. As long as you're alive, your body, your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength is intact inside you to make you a living human being. You're still able to care for, you're still able to care for people. You're still able to love. You're still able to uh, coherently understand and think. You're still able to create and exercise your gifts. You're still able to communicate in a very genuine way with other people. But the Bible says someday that's going to come to an end. If you continue to struggle to get away from God, one day you're going to succeed. One day you will get away so far, God will not be present. That's what the Bible says. That's really the, the point of the Bible to tell you that, really. Right? One day, if you continue getting away from God, you're going to succeed. Hell is a place after you're dead where the one thing that you wanted, was, which was to get away from God, you will actually be granted that thing. It will be granted to you. You will finally get to get away from God. So God really isn't unfair in building hell or having the existence of hell because he's really giving you what you want. The breakdown that you've been living out all your life will actually one day become complete. The disintegrating work that sin was working in your life will one day come to its fulfillment in sin, in hell. Think about this. You buy an appliance. You buy an appliance. um, You come home. You open up the box. There's a manual. And uh, the manual is full of directions. If you read the manual... The manual is going to tell you how to care for the appliance. The manual is going to tell you how to treat the appliance. The manual is going to tell you a lot of things about the appliance that you would never have known if you just try to figure it out on your own. A lot of times we make mistakes not reading the manual and the things break. We don't really know why things are operating the way they do. The manual is going to tell you don't do this or do this. If you don't do this, you're going to blow it out. If you do this, you're going to blow it out. Right? There's going to be breakdown. There's going to be a, a, a cease, there's going to be disintegration at work, right? It's going to break down. Things are going to break down. It's going to stop being integrated. What do you do? Do you look at this manual and you say, what is with GE? What is with General Electric? What gives Bose the right to tell me how to treat this appliance? What gives Samsung the right to tell me how to run my life and to tell me how to, how to turn this thing on and operate this thing? I've got it all figured out. No, that's not, you're never going to do that. If you're wise, you're going to read it. My wife, bless her heart, my wife, she reads, I don't read manuals, okay? I don't like to read manuals. You know, it's that, it's that male ego. You know, you buy something, I've got to figure it out. I know, you've got to turn it on, right? You know, my wife will come home, she will read that manual from cover to cover, you know? I scoff at her. I'm like, what are you doing? It's such a waste of time. She said, did you know that it could do this? And she'll do that. That's my wife, all right? But I don't do that. I tend to, you know, figure out, oh my gosh, I didn't know it did this, right? Later on, after I've broken it or something like that, right? Um, who, who are we to say? We read our manuals. You want to read the manual because you know the directions that the manual has to uphold the design of its maker. To violate those directions is to violate the design, it's going to lead to breakdown, ultimately to disintegration. You're going to throw it in the junk pile. 
the more self-centered you are, the more proud you are, the more rebellious you are, life starts to break down. We do it in very overt ways. We do it in very covert ways so that people don't see. It's already happening in our lives. Think about it. The more, sun, sen, the more you center yourself, uh, the more you center everything around yourself, that is, it gets harder to love people. It really does. It gets harder to think for other people when you're centering the world around you. After time, everything revolves only around you, only around your family, because it's your treasure. That's your treasure. You know, after a while, everything that goes wrong, it's somebody else's fault. Even at home, it's definitely not your fault. You, don't, you start to develop a majestic sense of self-pity. Nobody understands me here. Nothing ever goes right for me here. That's hell. That's the beginning of hell. It's the beginning of the breakdown. In hell, you have the sum of your self-pity, the sum of your self-centeredness. It starts to break out like a firestorm and explodes, completely consumes you, completely disintegrates you. You're trapped in a world of self-centeredness. The more proud you get, you're sure, you're absolutely sure everybody else is wrong. Life is unfair. This rich man, there's three things he says. Very, very interesting. Three things about what he says. The first thing he says uh, to Abraham, he says, send Lazarus to dip his finger in the water to cool my tongue for I am in anguish. That's what he says. But he's basically what he's saying is, I'm disintegrating. Abraham, I'm disintegrating. He's not even talking to God. He doesn't talk to God. He talks to Abraham. He's still so proud. And what does he do? He commands Abraham to command Lazarus to give him a job that only a servant or a slave would do. That's the rich man's view of Abraham. That's his view of Lazarus. They're still his slaves. They're still his servants. The rich man used to be on top. Lazarus was on the bottom. But then a sudden reversal that shocks the hearers of this text because now Lazarus is on top and the rich man is at the bottom. And yet he's still blind to his condition. The rich man, he understands that he's in agony. He gets that he's, he's in agony, but he's absolutely blinded by what's happened to him. He's just a rich man. He still sees himself as a rich man. The second thing he says, send Lazarus to warn my brothers. He says, you know, I've got brothers. They need proper warning. What's he saying there? What's the implication of that? I never got a proper warning. I, it's not my fault. He's still blaming other people. He's still blaming somebody. He's still making excuses. He's still trying to justify himself. He's still in self-pity. The third thing he does, uh, or the third thing we learn about what he says is he asks Lazarus to come and help, but he never asks, will you get me out of this? He says, I'm in agony. I'm in pain. Can you send Lazarus to kind of dip my tongue with water? He never says, get me out. And this is a very, very amazing thing. He never asks for forgiveness. He doesn't see his sin. He doesn't see his sin. He just wants relief from his circumstances. And that tells you something about hell. Hell is a place that we choose. We choose it. We choose to maintain it. Hell is nothing more than what we naturally ask for. It's always something we choose. Notice the rich man says, I'm suffering here. I'm in agony. Get me an air conditioner. He never says, get me out. Will you help me? To the end, God will not be his help. 
he still thinks he's in charge. Hell is your freely chosen identity. If you're proud, if you're a proud person, you're going to constantly compare yourself with other people. And you know how you know this? When you look down on people because they're not like you, because you're normal, right? Everybody else, there's something wrong with everybody else. Over the years, that gets worse. The worsening continues until C.S. Lewis says, it bursts into eternity until you become exactly what you envisioned yourself to be. It's hell. If you're an angry person, you're always complaining, always grumbling, you know, about even the smallest things around you. Hell begins, C.S. Lewis says, hell begins with a grumbling mood, irritations. Eventually, you're always complaining. You're always blaming other people. Maybe you're even blaming yourself all the time. You're always critical of yourself. Eventually, you're not going to be able to stop. You become a grumble. That's hell. That's why hell is a fire. It's consuming. You're addicted to pleasure. You're addicted to power. You're addicted to wealth and your pride. You go 80 years, that's pretty consuming. It's pretty uh, disintegrating. But you take that a million years out, what happens? You are completely consumed. That's one of the things that this text shows us about hell. The second thing it shows us much quicker is that it's isolation. You're alone. The rich man is in agony. And he, and he asks for help. What does Abraham say? There's a great chasm. Far away. It says that Abraham is far away from him. He's in isolation. He sees Abraham. He sees Lazarus. But Abraham says, I can't. There's a chasm. The more self-centered, the more absorbed, the more you're pitying yourself, the more you're blaming yourself, eventually, no one's going to be left around. You're going to be utterly alone. Romans chapter 1 says, all God really does is he gives us over to what we really, really want in the end. And whatever it is that he's giving us over to is going to make you or break you. It's going to make you more of yourself or make you less of yourself. And at the end, as a result, there's only two types of people. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce, he says, there's only two types of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done, or those to whom God says, thy will be done. Only two types of people. We're not thrown into hell. You know, I used to think, you know, like those old uh, cartoons, right? Those old animated, animated shows, you know, where, you know, Satan, like the, the ground opens up and you're kind of hanging on a cliff and then God kind of steps on your feet and he starts to squeeze and you're like, ah, you know, and then after a while you're like, Ah, right, and so you fall, and, and then God stands over, and he shuts the safe, and he starts closing the vault, and he goes, Whoa. I used to think that's what, that's what hell was. That's not hell. It's absolutely not the case. We are not thrown in. We choose it. The crazy part of it is we choose hell. No one asks, crying, get me out. Be my help. No one's even trying to get out. That's hell. But the gospel gives us freedom. The rich man's got options. The rich man, is, is got free, uh, he, he's got freedom. He's got potential. But death brought all that to the end. He's left with agony. He's left with disintegration. And he chose it. You know, uh, he, he's left with isolation. And he chose it. But here's Lazarus. On earth, he's got no options. He's got no freedom. He's got no potential. He's completely forsaken by the world. And when he dies, that death brought a greater freedom greater options. It was burst into freedom and power and joy because he's helped by God. It's who he trusts. Where is the power to get it? How do you get the true power to get this? The rich man says, I know what it takes to avoid this. 
Send Lazarus to those guys, to my brothers. Abraham says, you don't know. You don't even know. What's the rich man want? If only Lazarus were to show up from the dead, then these people will get it. Abraham says, no, that's not how it works. Because if you live a life using fear and your ego and punishment, you know, manipulation, guilt to beat people up, you know, that's not going to change their identity. If I were to send somebody to scare them, it's not going to change them. It will scare them. But it, it won't make them submit. Your identity will not change through fear. The rich man says, but if someone were to come from the dead, they'll get it. Jesus actually goes far enough to say, not even if someone rises from the dead. And whenever you see that word rise in the Greek in the New Testament, it's always in reference to Christ's own resurrection. It's synonymous with Christ's resurrection. He's referring to himself. Even if someone were to rise from the dead, they won't get it. It's always in reference to Christ. What he's saying is this. Even if somebody rises and shows them their hands and their feet, it won't work. You need Moses and the prophets. What? What does that mean? He's saying, you need somebody to explain that miracle. You need truth. You don't just need to see what's going on. You need someone to explain it to you. We're that unwise. We need, someone, we need Moses and the prophets to explain. You know, if I rise and appear, you're going to be scared, but you're not going to change. But if you know why I rose, if you understand why I came, you're going to experience the life-changing element of my love. It's love that changes identity. Love changes people. Why do we build our identity on the things that we tend to build our identity on, you know, like work, our relationships, you know, our, our rights, sometimes our politics. We cling so much of these as our identity. We're looking for love. We're looking to belong. We're looking for acceptance. We're looking for approval. We put lots of weight on these things. We put actually cosmic, eternal weight on these things. We look for love from our children. We look for love in our relationships our lateral relationships, our peers, we're always looking for love for somebody above. You know why? Because it's a cosmic love, ultimately. There's a cosmic emptiness created by sin, and we're looking for love to fill that. That's why relationships are so powerful in our lives. When we have a relationship, we feel complete. We don't need God. We don't need anybody. When we lose relationships, we are disintegrating. Why? Because we've always been disintegrating. Only God could have stopped the disintegration. We're looking for love. It's not going to change because, you know, through fear. It's not going to change through willpower. It's not going to change through manipulation tactics. You need a greater truth. Moses and the prophets, you need a greater truth that's going to lift you from your pity, your majestic sense of pity, your, your absorption, your, your self, self-righteousness, your selfishness. Why Moses and the prophets? What do the prophets say? If you read in your call to worship, Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, I'm just going to read a few verses. In Isaiah chapter 53, if you were part of, here for the call to worship, we know that it's about the suffering servant, God's Messiah who will experience tremendous violence. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. 
It means that he literally, that, that phrase means that he literally put it on his back. Our sorrows, he put it on his back, and he walked it. That's what it's saying. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was run through, basically, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. What did the prophet say? What Jesus would experience on the cross is worse than an eternity of being in hell. You know why? Because not only did he suffer hell on the cross, for a short time, in that very concentrated time frame that he was on the cross, he took on all of our hells. Millions of hells. Many times over, he experienced it. It means that Jesus experienced the total disintegration and justice that the world deserved. And he was on the cross and he was crying out. He was in agony, wasn't he? He was in agony. He was in pain. He was in torment. You know, and, and he was crying. And, and people tried to offer him things to relieve him. And even those times, many times, he refused. Because he wasn't really asking for relief from those pains. He was looking for cosmic relief because he was disintegrating. He was falling apart. His body was literally being torn apart. But greater, his soul was being torn apart. Isaiah 53 says Jesus was disfigured. He was marred beyond human appearance. But then it says that though the Lord made him a guilt offering, the results of his suffering, he will be satisfied. If you actually read the rest of Isaiah 53, I'm just going to read this part. Okay, verse 11. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. He will be glad. That's what he's saying. It's an amazing text. Unless you know what suffering is, you have no idea. Unless you know what his suffering is, let me correct that. Unless you understand and know what Jesus' suffering was and why, you will have no idea how satisfied he was. It means that unless you know the depths of Christ's suffering, you will know, you have no idea of Jesus' satisfaction and his joy in doing what he did. He did it gladly, and he did it for you. You have no idea what yours, the sum of your worth is, how much Jesus loves his people, how much Jesus values his people, we said, I would be willing to die for the things that are my treasure. Who did Jesus die for? He died for you. He died for me. Now, some of us, we don't believe in hell. We don't like to believe in hell. We just like to believe that God is a God of love. He loves everybody. Then you'll never get a true grip on the depth of Christ's love for you unless you understand hell. Unless you understand what the rich man, where he was, and ultimately what it means that God is our help. You would never understand the depth of his love for you. Why? Because a God that's truly loving has to be just. If you really believe that God, who is all-powerful, loves you, then there will be justice for your sake. If there is even one sin that goes unaccounted for under God's realm, he is not just. That means it's possible to get away with evil, and that means at the end of the day, evil wins. But to know that God is loving and he's just, fully just, that every sin will be accounted for to the end, that is love. That is, you are protected you are secure. You are loved to the end. You're a parent. You would protect that child with your life, wouldn't you? God protected his children with his life. 
He paid for it with his life. It means that the only way that God could be just and loving is to make a way for his people to be redeemed. What could make you feel more loved than a God who is just and willing to suffer for you? How much more does that make you know that you are worthwhile, that you are valued? Look at the cross. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 11 says he was satisfied. He was glad to do it. It means that the results of his suffering, he's looking out, he's looking at you, and he's saying, you are worth it, every ounce of it. His love overwhelmed his suffering. Jesus says, you need a transforming, overwhelming knowledge of my love that's going to lift you from your selfishness. Meditate on my love. Experience my love. To pull away from other things, that gravitational pull that other things have on you, it's because you're looking for love. You've got it. Look at Christ. Look at the gospel. Other things are going to disintegrate you. Some of us are feeling that disintegration right now. We're experiencing it. Other things are going to isolate you. We feel isolated in our identity. We feel like we've lost our name, so we scoff at other people. We despise other people. We detest other people. If you're doing that right now, guess what? You're suffering a disintegration. You're suffering the isolation. It's going to crescendo your life into eternity and explode you into hell. Jesus says, you want to know my love? Look at how much I suffered for you. How much did he suffer for you? When he was on the cross... He didn't say, my God, my God, I'm in agony. That's not what he said, right? My God, my God, these nails. That's not what he said. He said, why have you forsaken me? In other words, I love the Father. The Father is the center of my being. He is the one thing, that the essence that is holding me together, my sustaining presence that keeps me integrated and coherent. He is my worship. He is my treasure. And yet I lost the Father. I've lost a father. I am in true cosmic disintegration. The gap, now he's been forsaken. I see the gap between me and the father, and now I am alone and I am isolated. Jesus gave up his identity. I'm nameless. You know, he doesn't say, my father, my father. He says, my God, my God. And the word that he uses is a very generic word for God. My God, my God. The one time in the Gospels, that Jesus doesn't refer to God as his father. He's nameless. He became nameless, lost his identity for you. And why? 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 8, verse 9. Though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Lazarus, the dogs licked his sores. Jesus, in Psalm 22, says, the dogs have encircled me. Lazarus is starving and hungry. Jesus in the Psalms says, my tears have been my food. Jesus on the cross is mocked. Jesus on the cross is scoffed. Jesus is detested. Jesus is despised. He's been despised by men, it said, and despised by God, forsaken. That's what Isaiah 53 says. Despised and rejected by men and forsaken by God. And he did it gladly. He says, it was worth it for you. The tail end of the movie, Pride and Prejudice, my favorite book is Pride and Prejudice, but the tail end of the movie, and it's not a very good movie, the two-hour version at least, but there's one line that I really like. Mr. Darcy walks through the field in the early morning and, and finally sees Elizabeth Bennet. And she realizes at this point what he's done for him, all that he's sacrificed, his reputation, his wealth, everything for her. 
and she knows it was for her. He saved his, her family. And they confront each other, and he says, surely you must know it was all for you. It was all for you. Love. Love changes identity. Jesus got the fire, the isolation, the disintegration for you and for me. It wasn't just nails. It definitely wasn't just a spear. You don't believe there's such a thing as hell? Jesus says, I went through hell, through a million hells for you. Think what that's going to do. When you recognize right now that you are his treasure, then he can become your treasure. And then you're going to get a name. You have a name that lasts forever. You don't have to go looking for a name for yourself. Make it. In, your career is not what your name is to be banked on. You will have a career, but it's going to shape the way you do your career. It's going to shape the way you run your family. It's going to shape the way you lead your children, the way you even love your children. It's going to shape all those things. Because if Jesus, if you recognize the depth of how much he treasures you, you will treasure him. It will order everything else, and you will stop the disintegration. Will you make that your promise this week? Will you make that your joy this week? Let's pray.